I feel like when we talk about data-driven outbound, most companies think that they're doing some of what I just described. And I haven't actually seen that to be the case. So I think for smaller companies in particular, I never think it's too early to invest in really strong analytical horsepower. From Dogpatch Advisors, it's Ground Truth, a podcast about company builders, leadership, and how operators use data to build the future of sales. I'm Mercy Bell, and on today's show, we talk to Jean DeWitt, head of North America Revenue and Growth at Stripe. Jean shares with us how she managed to start a career in tech sales with nothing but a phone book and became one of the industry's preeminent thought leaders in the ever-evolving discipline of data-driven sales. If you didn't get your start in sales before, say, 2005, Jean's professional origin story may seem incomprehensible. On her first day as a sales rep for a small accounting software firm, she was given two tools and an assignment. They gave her a phone, a phone book, yes, an actual phone book, and a fairly broad directive, call every CPA on the Eastern Seaboard. There was no real onboarding process, no CRM. There wasn't even a computer on her desk. Nearly two decades later, Gina's helped define a much different approach to selling. What if instead of knowing only a person's name and their phone number, we were able to reimagine the outbound model, allow us to start with the hypothesis, utilize data to help validate or invalidate that hypothesis and use everything you find to target a prospect. As recently as 10 years ago, this was a novel concept. And Jean, as a longtime executive at Google, helped the search giant develop that very strategy. Since then, she's turned it into a function that is years ahead of its time. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Her story begins even before that phone book. Jean grew up in Northern California, where her father built a career in tech sales himself. His first job was actually at IBM. He was one of the first people to ever sell the personal computer. And so growing up, I watched him travel all over the world and always thought that was very cool, but didn't necessarily think more about tech. So it wasn't until I was about to graduate from college that going into tech occurred to me. In Jean's case, college meant Duke University in North Carolina, where she competed as a springboard diver. Though she majored in French, it was a sports marketing course that first sparked an interest in business. For a while, she thought she wanted to move back to California and work for her hometown, San Francisco 49ers. But just before her senior year, freshly 21 years old, Jean had what proved to be a fateful conversation with her father during a trip through Napa wine country. So we were on this wine train. And I'm having a life crisis and asked my father what I should do with my life. And he said, have you considered working in tech? And I hadn't. So I thought, okay, that, that might be interesting. You know, what could that look like? And my father had worked in sales. And his advice to me was, well, if you go into tech, you basically either want to build the product or generate revenue for the product. And since I didn't have a computer science degree, it didn't seem like the former was going to happen. So sales seemed like a potentially interesting route. So I actually went back my senior year, and now I had a totally irrelevant resume for anything I would want to do post-graduation. And so I found the one tech startup in Durham <laughs> that was an accounting software provider and reached out to them to see if they needed an intern. 
and they were open to having me as a sales rep. And so I showed up on the first day of work and they gave me a phone book, which is probably hard for maybe many listeners to even imagine, but a paper phone book and said, congrats, you own the Eastern Seaboard. Please start calling CPAs. And so that's what I started to do. <laughs> Little did Jean know that her inauspicious beginnings as a sales rep would soon land her job at a still yet to IPO search startup called Google. And so you end up at Google. How did that happen? This is actually a pretty awesome story. So again, this is 2004. So tech just wasn't what it is today. Google wasn't a public company, as an example. And I was at Duke on the East Coast where people really didn't go into tech. All of my classmates became bankers or consultants. And so I had no idea how to get into to tech at all or where to start. So I actually applied to Oracle and HP those were the two sort of behemoths at the time. And neither of them had college entry-level jobs. So I wrote these cover letters basically being like, I understand I'm not qualified for the role I'm applying for, but here's why I think you should hire me anyway. Suffice to say, they did not. And so how I wound up at Google was my mom's best friend was the academic advisor for Stanford's football team. And she told my mom on one of their nightly walks around the neighborhood, all the Stanford kids are going to Google. Why don't you suggest that Jean apply to Google? And so I applied to Google because my mom <laughs> suggested I apply to Google. And so I apply in January before I'm graduating because I'm basically one of the only of my classmates that didn't have a job because everybody gets their consulting or their banking job months in advance. And so I felt that I was likely going to be unemployed at this point. And I get a call back from Google and we're about 15 minutes into a phone screen. And clearly the recruiter had not looked at my resume before the start of the interview. And 15 minutes in, she gets to a piece of my resume and she's like, wait a minute, you haven't graduated, have you? And I was like, no. And she's like, I need someone who can start on Monday. Why don't you call me when you've graduated? So I gave her a call five months later when I was two weeks from graduating. And then I interviewed at Google three days after I graduated and I started three weeks later. Fascinating. And you get to Google and this is sort of pre enterprise, right? This is still a consumer search company. What did they have you do there? Yeah. So I thought I was applying to be an AdWords salesperson. I ended up becoming a Gmail support rep. So it was my job when people emailed Google to ask questions about Gmail or report a bug to answer those. So for context, Gmail launched on April 1st, 2004, and I started on June 1st, 2004. So I think the product had a few hundred thousand users when I joined. It was still an invite only, if people remember. This was when invites were going for $200 on eBay for a free product. So that was really my experience in a couple things. One was really having to learn to think about things at scale. So when I started, there were about 15 of us on the Gmail support team. And next to me were probably 40 empty desks that we were told were going to be filled with Gmail support people by the end of the summer. And then someone obviously woke up at one point and was like, hmm, this product makes no money. Perhaps employing 50 people to support it is not going to be a good idea. And so we had to change our approach to support to be able to do it at much more scale. And that's where we started developing a lot of stuff around what's today a modern help center. The other thing that working on Gmail really taught me was I ended up being one of the top people to answer technical tickets, despite being a French major, and as a result, worked really closely with our engineering teams. 
and became the liaison between the support organization and our engineering organization. And so that taught me a lot about how to work effectively and influence folks in product and engineering, which is something I've certainly carried forward into other roles. And when you say at the top in terms of answering these tickets, in terms of volume, what does the top look like? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were getting tens of thousands of emails. And keep in mind, again, 2004. So there was no Zendesk. Tools are not what they are today. And it was so bad that we had a two-week backlog in turning around and answering these things. There was just 15 of us. And I just found this completely, very personally upsetting to me that we were providing such poor support. So I had one weekend where I I stayed. I wasn't supposed to because I was a contractor. So I, I was actually only supposed to be working 40 hours a week. But I snuck in on the weekend because you also, you weren't given a laptop at this time, to go and work all day until 2 a.m. on a Saturday just to try to clear this backlog so these Gmail users could get their answers. But the thing I then figured out from that was it turned out when you read the subject line, you could predict what the content of the email was going to say. And we had canned responses written. So I could get to a point where with 97% accuracy, I could answer just having read the single subject line. So then you could start to actually like bulk respond to all these tickets where you could just go check, 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 select 40 of them at a time, send the same answer. So they were pretty thematic. So ended up my second quarter on, on Gmail, we are a 15 person team. And I personally answered a third of all the support cases we had to do because of this little methodology <laughs> I had developed. So you're sneaking in on the weekends, you're getting there because you're working harder than anyone. And then on top of that, you're finding these efficient ways and patterns to scale up how you're responding to these things. Yeah, we ended up trying to turn it into a tool called Yoda, which was, I think, sort of a first attempt at machine learning before, again, machine learning was a thing. It didn't quite take off, but conceptually it was there. (laughs) By that time, Gina decided that her ultimate career goal was to become a CEO. She admired the leaders she worked under at Google, specifically on the Gmail team, and came to an important realization. As much as Jean had learned in her time at Google, she knew enough to know what she didn't know. I had reached a point on Gmail where when I looked at the leaders I admired the most, I felt that they could think about problems in a way that I couldn't think about them. And they had frameworks and ways of breaking down these ambiguous questions that really, really impressed me. And as I was tackling bigger and bigger challenges with Gmail, because I ended up managing the team, I saw this gap and I didn't feel that I was going to close that gap at an appropriate rate at Google. Despite her expertise in operations, Jean felt her deeper quantitative skills were lacking. She excelled in math throughout school, but she knew little about finance or accounting. So she took advantage of a fellowship program Google offered at the time, which allowed her to remain an employee while taking two years off to get an MBA at Stanford. She returned to Google in 2010 and was assigned to work on what was then called Google Apps, now known as G Suite. Cloud computing was still a few years away from ubiquity, but Google had recently landed two enterprise customers, and was building out a team to cover small and mid-market businesses. Her manager at the time asked her to help him with a vexing problem in the small business segment. So I came back to Google to work for a guy who had been my boss for six months pre-business school, who I thought was brilliant, Rich Rao, and wanted to work for him again. 
So he owned this S&B and mid-market segment. And within that, he had two sub-segments. There was small business, which was employees under 50, and then mid-market, which was 50 to 250. And he said, Gene, I've got an interesting problem here. Small business represents 75% of my revenue, but it's not growing year on year. Mid-market represents only 25% of it, but it's growing at 300%. Can you come in and run small business and figure out how to make the thing grow again? And that sounded like a pretty interesting challenge to me. So I came in to run the small business segment to get their sales ops function off the ground and then to run an SMB channel, a reseller team. At the time, Google had a freemium model. And so Google Apps was free for customers with less than 50 employees, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, might be cannibalistic to revenue in the segment I was running. So, I don't know, two weeks in, I go to Rich and I'm like, Rich, I've figured it out. <laughs> Our freemium policy sucks. Let's get rid of it. And at the time, he was like, there's religion around that, basically. You can't kill that freemium policy. And I had very clear data to show that this was a flawed strategy. But sometimes things that are a bit religious. So dropped it for a little bit. And then I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was about two months later that I heard something that sort of keyed me off to the fact that maybe there was an opening to revisit this thing. And so I put together this big analysis and went back to Rich and said, look, I think there's an opening here. I would really like to pursue changing this strategy. And he let me go present it to the president of Enterprise. And he found it compelling, but he said there are a lot of people who feel very strongly about this topic. And so it can't just be me. You've got to convince some other folks, including some very early Google Apps engineering and product leaders. What ended up happening is for some odd reason, we decided the best way to solve this was via effectively like a high school debate where I would present the pro side and this director of product who did not want to change would present the con and we would just like face off like a high school debate in front of the entire Google Enterprise executive team. And keep in mind at this time, I am also three months back from the job. So I'm not new to Google, but I'm new to this org. And I'm a relatively junior manager <laughs> trying to change this policy that everybody seemed to love. But ultimately, it seems like my analytical argument was a little bit tighter. And so we decided to change it. And we didn't kill it outright. We took it down to 10 seats. And so <laughs> in the quarter... After we changed that freemium policy, we doubled revenue. Wow. And there was not a lot of PR backlash. Wow. I love it how you go off to business school, come back and like, turns out we should charge people for stuff <laughs> if it's valuable. Not long after solving the freemium problem, Gene was approached with another challenge. Google's Asia Pacific region was exploding at that time, but no one was quite sure why. The company had been interviewing candidates to run the region, but hadn't found the right person. Out of the blue, Jean's manager offered her the position. And that definitely caught me off guard. And so I went home that night. My parents actually lived relatively close to Google. So I went to my parents' house and slept on it, I think, for two nights and went back and said, I will absolutely do this. It was an opportunity to run a whole region. So I was going to take on some segments and functions I hadn't run before. Google had this term at the time around being uncomfortably excited, and it sure made me uncomfortable. You're living in Sydney, but you're traveling around the region. If I remember correctly, you were somewhat Google famous for spending a bunch of time in India solving another big problem for Google. Tell us about that. 
Yeah. So when I got out to APAC, again, you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I predictably grow revenue? And the region was doing triple digit year on year growth, but it was clear it was not going to continue at that trajectory. So there are sort of two things that became clear to me. One was we were underinvested in India. And in particular, our price point was just way off for the Indian market. Like we had taken the American price point and just converted it to rupees, which wasn't going to work. And then the second was, ironically, our biggest problem was just taking people's money. So we didn't have a top of funnel problem. You had people signing up online left, right, and center. But your trial conversion rate was super, super low in a ton of these markets because they don't have a Visa credit card. And that was the only way that you could pay for Google Apps was with a credit card. So this is a payments problem. It was a payments problem. And so I ended up with a colleague of mine in EMEA, because EMEA had a similar deal, putting together a massive analysis of the impact of what we called at the time IFOPs, international forms of payment. What, what this IFOP problem was doing in, in reducing conversion rate outside the United States. And it was a pretty compelling case at the time, though, payments. So this would have been 2012. Super, super hard to integrate. And so Google, we just couldn't actually justify the investment to go out and figure out how to integrate Combini in Japan, Zeppa in Europe, etc. So we didn't do anything about it. After a run of success in the Asia-Pacific region, Jean soon found herself back at Google's Mountain View headquarters where she was now tasked with heading up sales in the Americas. This was where Jean was inspired to more or less rethink the company's entire sales model, spearheading a move that has defined her career ever since. So within North America, we were now at the point where what had been a purely inbound-driven model was no longer sustaining the rate of growth that Google was seeking. And so we needed to do a number of things. One was we were going to have to figure out outbound. Two was we had now more than one product to sell. And so we needed to figure out where to sell that. Do you sell it at the start? Do you upsell it, et cetera? And then three, we needed to put some lightweight account management in place. And so those were the key things I focused on for about a year and a half when I came back and where some of my initial approach and theories on outbound started to materialize is ironic because Google, people think of it just being flooded by resources, but you just never had the headcount that you were supposed to have to do the job you needed to do. But you did have smart people. And so we kicked a project off around outbound with a couple PhDs on the data science team and then a bunch of our top reps to try to figure out if we could do outbound a little bit differently. I think I only was there for about three months into that project before I ended up leaving, but inklings. <laughs> Jean's CEO aspirations had been replaced by a new long-term goal. She wanted to become a chief revenue officer. Running a combination of sales, marketing, and partnerships, she was particularly passionate about running sales and marketing together. Because while at Google, she noticed a dynamic between the two departments, in which the teams got along well, but strategically tended to overlap. Our strategy, our go-to-market strategy, always felt like a Venn diagram. And so I really wanted to be able to lead an organization where you could have an integrated, coherent go-to-market strategy. And so I knew ultimately I was going to leave Google. I wasn't necessarily 
actively looking to leave. I was starting to explore opportunities, pick my head up, but I wasn't unhappy. And I had been talking to a startup that was founded by some ex-Googlers that was in the SaaS communication space. So it was pretty adjacent to what I was doing. The company ultimately was called Dialpad. And so I spoke to them for nine months. And after nine months, the founder offered me the exact job I wanted. So, you know, he's come be our CRO and it will include sales, marketing, and partnerships. And I knew no other company at that point was going to give me that exact job. And I believed in the product. I knew the space and I was really excited to take on that type of role. So I gave a shot. Jean stayed with Dialpad for a year, during which time she learned an important lesson, what it's like to not work at Google. But it also positioned her for what would become the biggest move of her career, joining Stripe. Leaving Google, basically the first thing you have to figure out is half of what you know is innovative and world-class, and half of what you know will only work at Google, and you need to forget it immediately. And so Dialpad was a great experience in figuring out what half was what, (laughs) and also learning how to go to market when you don't have this massive brand backing you. So anyway, while I was at Dialpad, Claire Johnson, who's the COO of Stripe, she actually was my first boss when I was 22 at Google and another just amazing leader. I had worked for her twice at Google. And when she started at Stripe, she gave me a call. And unfortunately for me, I was about six months into the role at Dialpad and so thanked her for calling, but wasn't planning to move. And then ultimately about a year and a half in, ended up calling her and saying, I actually think maybe I'd like to come work for you. And 48 hours later, I was in her office. And I think about six weeks later, I was an employee of Stripe. What was Stripe like in 2016? This is four, four years ago. Yeah. So Stripe, when I joined, was about 400 employees. And they were only six months into having any sort of formal sales organization. So when I joined, you had this team, just some of the smartest people I'd ever worked with, but only some of them had had any sort of sales experience and they were being flooded by inbound demand. And so the sales process, A, there wasn't a process, but B, it was almost entirely over email, including negotiating contracts, which I thought was crazy. And it was just a little bit of the Wild West. So I remember I started and like any good sales leader, I go to my boss and I'm like, all right, what's my number? How much revenue do you need me to bring in? And she was like, you don't have a number. I was like, yeah, I I have a number. No, you don't have a number. And I was like, well, Stripe has a revenue goal. So clearly I have a number. She's like, all right, why don't you go talk to finance? And so went and talked to the finance organization and there was a number for new business, although you could really accurately forecast our existing business. And so basically new business was sort of the delta between the top line number we wanted and what we knew the install base was gonna produce. So from there, I was like, okay, great. Next steps, I've got to figure out what needs to be true for me to hit this number. And so trying to put an operating model in place, basically. And so I basically spent the first 60 days being an account executive myself and trying to sell a lot of deals, figure out how much of my SaaS knowledge will apply here versus where is payments or selling an API different and how do I create a replicable process because then I can start to forecast it, make it predictable, et cetera. And so that was sort of like the first two quarters were focused on was trying to figure out a replicable process and then what were going to be the growth levers and where was I going to need to pull to make sure we were going to grow at the rate that the company wanted. (laughs) 
For Jean DeWitt, the learnings she took with her from Google helped plant the seeds, inklings as she calls them, that would eventually inspire her to build a game-changing, go-to-market machine at Stripe. In part two of this episode, she'll tell us exactly how that machine works. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Clearbit. Clearbit is a marketing data engine that helps you deeply understand your customers and build a hyper-efficient growth engine. We've known the team at Clearbit for about four years now and use Clearbit data for all our own projects. Just about all of our customers rely on Clearbit data to cut through the noise and focus their go-to-market teams. We've seen so many examples of Clearbit really helping their customers better understand their sales and marketing funnel. And some of their customers are able to get really creative with their sales plays. For example, we worked with Segment, one of the world's leading customer data platforms. They're using everything from Clearbit Reveal to understand which companies are on their site from anonymous traffic, Clearbit Technographics to understand their technology profile and how good of a fit they would be for Segment, and Clearbit Prospector to identify the ideal contacts at each company. Thank you to Clearbit for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Clearbit, visit clearbit.com. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, check out groundtruthpod.com for other Ground Truth episodes and a deeper dive into each story. Ground Truth is a production of Dogpatch Advisors, written by Jack Buer from Campfire Labs, sound engineering and studio space provided by TJ Bonaventura and Julian Lewis from Studio Pod, editing and mixing by Jorge Gonzalez from Noda Lab, and video production by Nick Shaheen from Above Treeline Studios.